Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 43 and we're mid-July 1900. The conventional war has ended and the guerrilla war has begun. The next few episodes will explore the actions of various leaders as they crisscross the South African countryside, but it's not a romantic gallop. There are moments of unbelievable pain and suffering on all sides. The British soldiers were also to find their battles contradictory, not least being the political toing and froing in their homeland while they marched back and forth on the harsh African felt. There were also Australians, Irish, New Zealanders, Canadians and many others. For the Australians, the felt was a reminder of home in many ways, full of snakes that could kill and heat that sapped and drained. The Canadians were mainly frontiersmen who had signed up partly for King and Commonwealth and partly for adventure. They were used to snow and cold, but here in South Africa, the sharp contrast between day and night in winter can cause rocks and men to crack. It's midwinter. We'll begin this week riding once more with Christian de Vett and the Free State Commander, which had been holed up in the mountains around the Caledon Valley. As we heard last week, Lieutenant General Hunter had arrived in Bethlehem, which is a town close to the Brandwater Range, the Witteberger and the Roiberger, the White and Red Mountains, on the western arch of the Basutu, or modern-day Lesotho border. Further east, the Barrier of Spears, or the Drakensberg Mountain Range, the Dragon Mountains, rise steeply and are covered in snow most of winter. It's a dangerous place to be caught outside without food, shelter and fire, with the igneous rocks worn sharp and steep and high by weather that is as extreme as anywhere. We also heard how General de Vett had taken charge in a vote where he had asked the other officers to finally decide who should lead the Free State Boers in their next round against the British. It was a three-way contest that was actually no contest. General Prinsloo, General Christian de Vett, and the other general who had thrown his hat into the ring was Christian's brother, Piet. Prinsloo received two votes, Piet one and Christian 27. This has a Cain and Abel ring to it, as you'll hear in our next podcasts. These two brothers had been turned into heroes during the First Anglo-Boer War of 1881 and now were back leading their men against the same enemy, the English. But these were two very different men. Piet was a man of law and order. He liked organization. As the organized Boer defenses began to crumble, Piet began to have serious second thoughts about the war itself, whereas Christian appeared to revel in the chaos. This difference was to lead to a final falling out in the most extreme manner. So, Christian has broken up his army of around 5,000 men into three active divisions, with the fourth smaller division set to stay behind in the Witteberga under the command of Martinus Prinsloo, who was soon to embarrass and enrage de Vett. The first division under de Vett himself consisted of burghers from Heilbronn, Kronstadt, Bethlehem, and a smaller group from Bosov and Griqualand, as well as a handful of Potchestrom Boers. De Vett also ordered Dani Taron and his international mercenaries to join the main force, while President Steyn and government officials were to ride with De Vett as well. The second division was entrusted to Assistant Commander-in-Chief Paul Roo and featured burghers from Forismith, Bloemfontein, Vierpener, Smithfield, Tabanshu, Jakobstal and Dierki. De Vett writes, This force was to wait until the day after my departure, that is, until the 16th, and then proceed in the evening in the direction of Bloemfontein. 
from the capital it was to go south and during its advance it was to bring back to the commandos all those burghers in the southern districts who had remained behind. It wasn't quite a press gang, but it was close. General Crowther was given command of the 3rd Division, which featured men from Fixburg, Ladybrunt, Winberg and Senegal. They were told to march north and meet up with commandos from Harrismith and Freire to the east. The remainder of the Bethlehem men, the Witterbergen farmers, remained as a watch. They occupied the strategic mountain passes at Slabertsnek, Ratifsnek and Naupurt. You can imagine de Vett scowling as he wrote this. They were forbidden to use wagons. Thus, if the enemy should appear in overwhelming numbers, it would always be possible for them to escape across the mountains. It's this group that was to cause de Vett great distress, because he was to be let down in the following week. De Vett had purposefully chosen this division to remain behind because they knew the countryside best. They belonged to the district, and he believed they were well acquainted with every foot of what he called this rough and difficult country. Their duties were simply to protect the large numbers of cattle which we had driven onto the mountains, and I anticipated that there would be no difficulty about this, for now that all our commanders had left these parts, the English would not think it worthwhile to send a large force against a mere handful of watchers. But first, on the 15th of July, and under the very noses of the British, the vet and 1,500 men slipped past them through Slubbitzneck and onto the rolling Free State Plains, heading northwest. What De Vett had done was extremely clever. He had used a central mountain pass, moved east and then south of Bethlehem, finally doubling back around the town and heading off in a northwest direction to Heilbronn. Meanwhile, in Bethlehem itself, Lieutenant General Hunter suspected something was up. When word came on the morning of the 16th that a large group of Boers had given his men the slip, Broadwood and Ridley's mounted brigades were sent on a hot-footed pursuit. De Vett's circuitous route, though, had complicated their chase. At that point, Hunter had no idea that his nemesis, De Vett, was actually in this large group making a dash for freedom. Hunter had hemmed this army into the semicircle of mountains along the Caledon Valley. Then he tried to get the remaining Boers on nearby farms to talk about their plans, but they refused to provide any information. What is even more telling is that the British force chasing De Vets should have caught them because De Vett was travelling with ox wagons, and yet Hunter's mounted units still could not keep up. However, Hunter was no fool. He was merely facing a highly mobile enemy led by a gifted military commander. The British commander was a doer Scotsman. He had a rare gift that only the best leaders have. The ordinary soldier loved him because he didn't pretend he cared for them. He really did. Motivated troops with high morale are one of the secret weapons to winning a war. A member of the Remington Tigers is quoted as saying, He has a way of looking at you, no matter who you are, Tommy or officer or whatnot, with a wonderfully kind expression, as if he felt the most friendly interest in you, and so he does. It's not a bit put on. While Hunter was loved by his men, he was about to become despised by the Boers. Lord Roberts had told his officers privately that their Hearts and Minds campaign was a failure, and it was time to institute a far harsher program. You must understand that Roberts did not issue orders to this effect yet. He merely sent a telegram to Hunter which read, More stringent measures than hitherto are being taken as punishment for wrecking trains, destroying telegraph lines, etc. Stop. So, 
As Hunter began to move from here on, his men left a kind of signature in the sky behind them, pillars of black smoke which entwined with the red dust of the dry felt. Lieutenant General Hunter began to select Boer farms for burning, and he did so as a professional soldier. After all, he had been ordered to make things difficult for a professional enemy. But the irregular troops riding with him, particularly the colonial troops, were shocked and dismayed by what transpired. Thomas Packenham, the author, sourced the diaries of these dismayed soldiers, including one Remington Tiger who says, The worst moment is when you come to the house. The people thought we had called for refreshments, and one of the women went to get milk. Then we had to tell them that we had to burn the place down. I simply did not know which way to look. The Boer women and children were given ten minutes to remove clothing and anything they could before the buildings were torched. Grandmothers would verbally abuse the troops, who were disconsolate. Our source continues, The women cried, and children stood by, holding on to them, looking with large frightened eyes at the burning house. They won't forget that sight, not even when they grow up. And of course, they didn't. He continues, We rode away, and we left them, a forlorn little group, standing among their household goods, beds, furniture strewn about the felt, the crackling of fire in their ears, the smoke and flames streaming overhead. You can understand the British point of view. They were fighting what they thought were Europeans in Africa, and Europeans were supposed to have rules of warfare. The first rule was when you're defeated, you give up. But of course, the Boers were African. They fought to survive, and a simple scrap of paper was worthless compared to the honour of a couple of centuries of history. The British repeatedly made the Boers swear oaths of surrender, only to have these same Boers pop up later on horses, wielding the accurate Morza and blowing up their expensive railway lines. So eventually, the British civilised veneer shredded, and Roberts and his officers thought by targeting the women and children and the farms, the men would crumble. Some did, many didn't. That's the story when an invading army spends too much time on the land they don't own or understand. They begin looking for a quick fix and then make the fatal error of targeting civilians. But the British were only just getting started in this dirty phase. For, waiting in the wings, was a certain General Kitchener, moustache twitching, lanky legs swathed in dusty boots, piercing eyes glaring. He wanted something even more severe, but his time was some months hence. So right now, we're with Lieutenant General Hunter, who is holed up in Bethlehem, having sent his two mounted divisions north to chase after the 1,500-strong commando led by Christian de Vett. Hunter was waiting for Clement's brigade, which would only be ready on the 20th of July. It was what was going on in the Witteberga that shook the Boers far more than this burning of their farms. Immediately after de Vett galloped away with his commando, some of the officers he'd left behind expressed the wish that another meeting should be held to choose another second-in-command. This, of course, was mutiny. Even by Boer standards, this was totally illegal, because, as de Vett explains, For the Volksrat, the government, had decreed that the president should be empowered to alter all the commando laws. This commander was altering its laws by itself. On July 17th, two days after de Vett had left, a meeting was called together at which Martinez Prinsloo was chosen assistant commander-in-chief. De Vett, writing after the war, was disgusted. 
He had a bare majority, even at the actual meeting, and several officers who had been unable to be present had still to record their votes. The anger in his writing can be understood considering what happened next. While he was leading Hunter's two brigades in a wild goose chase to the northwest, back in Bethlehem, the British Free State commander was not idling away his time. Remember, Hunter was a very able soldier, very smart, and was also using his own scouting parties to determine the lie of the land. He had two spies in Basutaland linked to the British mission there, who were feeding him information about the location of the Boers on the Witterbergen and the Rodebergen. The important thing for an invading army to have is clear and unambiguous intelligence supplied without the guerrilla army's knowledge. This puts an organized army in the ascendancy, but the important thing is the enemy must not know that you know. Hunter had now begun to build a clearer idea of what was happening behind the screen of mountains that faced him. The two British agents were feeding him daily updates who sent their messages with Basuta runners, men who easily bypassed the Boer sentries and guards and ran down the mountain into Bethlehem. Just as an aside, a few years ago I was camping below the Drakensberg peak known as Monk's Cowl on a climb, and at dusk men began to run from the peak down into the valley, it's about a kilometre straight down, from Lesotho down into South Africa. They moved quickly and were carrying contraband on their heads, bypassing the customs and border officials. I was amazed at how silently they moved and how quickly they disappeared into the gathering gloom. I imagine the messengers, the Anglo-Boer War, running from the Lesotho Mountains down into Bethlehem were similar, wiry, fast-moving, almost invisible and silent. Hunter knew that the Boers based behind the mountains were planning to move westwards out of the Brandfather Basin through the town of Fixburg, yet he could not activate his main force just yet. He would have to wait another week before moving. It was the 17th of July. South African forces were taking a breath, and next week would see increased action across the mountains of the Free State and the mountain landscape of the eastern Transvaal, hundreds of kilometers to the northeast of where Hunter planned his action. So we will move here quickly. It was here in the Transvaal that Lord Roberts was planning to drive the Boer commander Louis Botha into Portuguese East Africa, where he would be forced to reconsider his future and perhaps surrender. Back in Britain, however, the Anglo-Boer War was becoming a sideshow. The Boxer Rebellion was in full swing in China, where the British had found themselves in the middle of an uprising. After months of clashes and violence through the first part of 1900, by June the Boxer fighters convinced they were invulnerable to foreign weapons and converged on Beijing. And by July, as De Wet galloped across the felt towards Heilbronn and Hunter, hunkered down. These boxers yelled, exterminate the foreigners, and were killing droves of Chinese Christians and Europeans. Missionaries and their families were being chopped to bits, and the English newspapers were full of the gory details, which were being lapped up by the middle classes. South Africa began to slip off the news agenda, which is a pity, because the Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, and other colonial forces were about to find out that Louis Botha could still reach out and deal them a blow or two. On the same day that Christian de Wet had given Hunter the slip from the Witteberger, Louis Botha had set up an attack on the Canadians who had just received fresh Argentinian ponies east of Pretoria in the Transvaal. 
The Canadian Mounted Rifles rejoined their brigade at Ritflay Pass, northeast of the Transvaal capital, Pretoria, on the 15th of July, and by sunrise of the 16th, they were in a skirmish. General Boerter had ordered his men to begin probing the outposts at Ritflay Pass overnight, so that by the morning of the 16th, Lord Roberts's men were fully aware that something was up. The various passes, including Witpoort and Tigerport, came under Boer attack, and the Canadian Mounted Rifles B Squadron was forced to pull back from Witpoort or be overrun. As the Dragoons withdrew, the defence fell to three companies of the Irish Fusiliers, as well as a small company of around 60 New Zealanders on ridges nearby. But the small New Zealand company surrendered after the loss of two officers and 17 men, while the Irish stubbornly held on. The Canadians were not finished. They had withdrawn only to gallop around the back of the pass and attack Witpoort from the north and led to the Boers eventually retreating for fear of being surrounded. It was during this confrontation that another of the macabre coincidences of this war took place. One of the Canadian officers, who was well-liked, had just arrived back at the front after recovering from injuries. Lieutenant H.L. Borden was a tough Canadian soldier, the kind of soldier that the British were to rely on in the next war, the Great War of 1914-1918. Lieutenant Borden was still not fully fit, but determined to make his mark on this fight. He and another lieutenant by the name of Birch wanted to get a better view of where the Boers were on the Tigerport Ridge, so both stood up to see where the Morsa fire was coming from. That was the last thing they did. They were shot at close range and killed. In the newspapers back in Canada it was written, There was no casualty list during the war which attracted so much sympathy throughout the whole of Canada as that of the engagement of July 16th. The reason was, Borden was the only son of Canada's Minister of Militia, or the Army in common language. The death was reported to Lord Roberts by General Hutton, officer commanding. As we know, Lord Roberts's only son had also died earlier in the Anglo-Boer War, so Roberts commiserated with a great deal of compassion. The loss of Lieutenants Borden and Birch had a profound effect on the Canadian battalion. It also led to an extreme act of revenge a short time later. Stories began to circulate that Lieutenant Borden had actually been shot dead by an Irishman fighting for the Boers. According to one source quoted in the book called Painting the Map Red, which focuses on the Canadian forces fighting in South Africa, the Canadians eventually captured an Irish sniper who had been fighting with the Boers. They handed this unfortunate unnamed victim over to the Irish Fusiliers who then murdered the unfortunate man. While this gratuitous act was being carried out, General Louis Boerter's men were in full retreat from Ritflay, and once more the game of cat and mouse was in full swing in the Transvaal, and this personal war was becoming more personal by the week. But it's here we must halt and remove our saddles, make a fire, drink a cup of coffee. Next week, we'll continue riding with the vet who hears of the surrender of Martinus Prinsloo and how Christian's brother Pete began to waver and reconsider his role in the war. So please remember to like our podcast on iTunes if you can. And thanks for the emails and messages from friends of this series. And to the many listeners in Hong Kong, thank you too for helping our numbers climb up the charts. And to people who've stopped me in South Africa to have a chat, thank you too for your messages of support. Please remember to check out our website, abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye.